The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, September the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linnan. Canadian author Naomi Klein's 1999 book No Logo inspired anti-globalist and anti-corporate protest movements by laying out the connections between consumer capitalism and the abuse and exploitation of workers in sweatshops and factories in the developing world. Over the last decade, her attention has turned increasingly to the climate crisis and her new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, makes the argument for a radical anti-capitalist solution to the challenge. She joined me for today's podcast. Naomi Klein, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, First of all, I suppose I'd like to ask you, in light of this book, you are a radical in a long line of radicals. Your grandfather, I think, was in the Hollywood blacklist. Your father moved to Canada to uh, avoid having to go to fight in Vietnam. Uh, And you have more than 20 years uh, as, as an activist. And is it fair to say that it took you a little while to come to the conclusion that the fight against climate change was at the heart of radical activism in the 21st century? Yeah, I think it is fair to say that um, for a lot of the time that I was writing about corporate injustice, uh, human rights abuses, I was certainly aware of the environmental impacts um, of corporate malfeasance when I wrote No Logo 20 years ago. Uh, it focused on both the labor aspect um, of, of the kind of deregulated corporate globalization that we were seeing in that period, but also the environmental impacts. Um, but I, I wasn't sort of thinking on a planetary scale. Um, and I think what changed things for me was when I was in New Orleans, uh, covering Hurricane Katrina and really saw the intersection of the economic policies that I had been writing about, uh, privatization, deregulation, um, and and what that looked like when you had climate change layered on top. You had this record-breaking storm that, that broke through the neglected storm defenses, um, and it was absolutely disastrous. So it was really Hurricane Katrina that was my wake-up call. And is it fair to say that that journey which you've been on is a journey perhaps that a lot of people you know, on the left have been on, that they were, I'm not sure if it's even fair to say that they were slow to recognise the, 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 the crucial uh, the, how important this is, but but perhaps that they saw it as something separate from their core ideological mission, that it was something that was um, less political and operated in a different way from the way that people traditionally thought on the left about politics? I mean, there are certainly exceptions. Uh, there are certainly people who, who saw those connections early on. Um, but I think for a lot of people who are really in the thick of just life and death struggles, it was hard for a long time to feel like climate change was as urgent as whatever it was that that people were were fighting against. Um, So, you know, I think it wasn't so much that people didn't care, but there was sort of a sense that this was one issue that you had these big, slick green NGOs who were focused on 
And, um, you know, we were the ones who were fighting for people to have enough money to live, not to be evicted, you know, not to be abused by the police or whatever it was. So um, I think part of that was for a long time, we talked about climate change as this sort of a problem of the future, not of the present. Uh, and, And that has really shifted. I think we understand now that we are in it and we understand that climate change um, is an accelerant to all of these other abuses. Um, you know, whether, you know, it is a, it, it is a fueling armed conflict, um, whether it's exacerbating poverty, whether it's fueling white nationalism, because uh, in the face of mass migration, you have these demagogues uh, um, fueling racist responses. I mean, climate change just makes everything worse, right? It doesn't just make things things, you know, wetter and hotter. It also makes things meaner and crueler. And you see that manifested in lots of other ways. Um, you know, for instance, in, in Puerto Rico, uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, there's been a spike in domestic violence and femicide. You know, it, it just puts that extra stress on a society. So, you know, I don't see climate change as being apart from all of these other issues. It's, it's a layer. And there's no doubt that as the effects of climate change become more apparent across uh, across the world, those who are first to suffer and are going to be first to suffer are the the weakest and and most vulnerable. But there there has been and a percep- least responsible indeed, and indeed, least responsible. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But th- there has been a perception in the past, however however mistaken, that that green issues, as represented by who voted for green parties, I know we've seen it here in Ireland and perhaps in other European countries, that you know that it was a middle class vote as opposed to a working class vote. That it was in some ways, some weird way, seen as a luxury, so that when the financial crisis hit. Uh, in this country, the green vote, you know, collapsed. You know, a sense that somehow it wasn't central, but in a way it is becoming central, whether people like it or not at this point, isn't it? Absolutely. But I think, you know, I think real mistakes were made inside the green movement. In, in And this is something that I've been writing about for a long time and, and, and do in this book as well. Just in terms of the extent to which a lot of the European and North American green movement was very much in the thralls of the sort of market logic of the 1990s, um, putting forward so-called market-based solutions to climate change that had a lot to do with appealing to people as consumers, you know, buy this, not that, which assumes a certain amount of disposable income. So I think that that green policies gained a reputation, an understandable reputation for being um, kind of tone deaf to, to the stresses that working people are under. A powerful example of this is what happened under Emmanuel Macron in France um, with the rise of the Yellow Vest movement, where the kinds of climate policies that he introduced um, were ones that increased the the cost of petrol for working people at the same time as he's handing tax breaks to the ultra-rich. This is how climate action has gained this kind of reputation as uh, a, a luxury issue for people who can afford it. And I think the significance of the emergence of the Gre- a Green New Deal in the United States and in, and, and in the UK and in other parts of the world is that we finally have 
a, uh, a green agenda that marries the need for us to radically lower emissions with those bread and butter issues for good jobs, um, you know, for services like key services like healthcare and education uh, that are free or affordable uh, for working people. Uh, so I think we're finally getting out of that box. But there are good reasons why the climate movement gained that sort of rep- reputation. But I think it's also worth um, remembering that it's always the poorest people on the planet who are have been on the front lines of the battles against deforestation, against pollution. One of the many things, and it's part of this, what we're talking about here, that you pinpoint in the book, which is fascinating, is that um, the left-right divide has become more visible, not just because of the left realising the importance of climate change, but because it's become a wedge issue, particularly in American politics, I think, more so than in European politics. So a climate crisis rejection, uh, rejection of the science underlying, underlying all that, is, is increasingly, is exclusively associated with conservatives and has almost become a badge of conservative identity in a way in the book you say wasn't the case 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's been a huge spike in climate change denial on the far right of the political spectrum and the the far right of the Republican Party. It's starting to shift a little among centrist Republicans, which is good news. Uh, But there aren't that many centrist Republicans, uh, so that's bad news. Um, And if if you look at the social science on this, it's very interesting because... um, there, there have been several studies that have looked at the correlation between worldview and views on climate change. And what they found is that people who have what is known as a hierarchical worldview, which generally just means that you sort of feel that people are where they are in the, in the social strata because they pretty much deserve to be there, that the wealthy deserve to be wealthy because they work harder uh, and the poor deserve to be poor because of some sort of pathology. So you're sort of comfortable with very high levels of inequality. You believe some people are just kind of better than other people's. You have a hierarchical worldview. The people who have the, the strongest hierarchical worldview overwhelmingly deny the reality of climate change. Um, and I think there's very good reason for that because the, that worldview tends to correlate with the idea that we should you know, have a very small government, that we shouldn't intervene too much, that things are basically okay the way they are, we should leave it all to the magic of the market and so on. Um, and climate change challenges all of that because, of course, it means that we do need to regulate polluters. It means we do need to invest in the next economy, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's public transit, um, whether it's energy efficiency. So it sort of shatters that whole sort of quote-unquote free market worldview. But I think I think it's an even deeper uh, challenge because climate change makes us realize that we are in a web of connection with uh, one another, um, with the natural world. I mean, you think about the horror with which so many of us watched the fires in the Amazon and realizing, you know, 20% of our oxygen comes from those trees we're we're forced to confront the fact that we are not um, in this rigid hierarchy of life where we sit on top. Um, We are in a web of of connection and, and the climate crisis forces that knowledge upon us. And so I think that is, if you have that hierarchical worldview that is based on these rigid separations uh, among people and and between humans and the rest of the natural world, then climate change is 
it is just detonating to that worldview. And we know it is easier to deny reality than it than it is to 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 have your worldview shattered. And unfortunately, the climate crisis is intensifying at the same time as our information ecology is uh, is is shattering as well. So uh, it's uh, easier and easier to just be exposed to ideas that reinforce your worldview rather than challenge it. Isn't there a danger, though, um, for those on the left and for those who consider climate change perhaps the, the, the greatest challenge facing us in the in the decades ahead, if it becomes so associated with the right-left ideological divide as it seemed to have happened, particularly in the particularly in the United States, that it becomes more difficult to build a consensus of any sort around collective action? It is difficult. It's already difficult. But, you know, where we are right now is we... we there are more people in the United States who not only uh, recognize that climate change is happening, but rank it at, as the highest or second highest issue that they care about uh, in, in this U.S. electoral cycle. That's really significant because just a few years ago, when I was writing This Changes Everything um, that came out in 2014, these same polls were showing that Democrats would say, oh, I care about climate change. But if you ask them to rank it... Sorry, if you ask them to rank it among the issues that they cared about, they would reliably rank it last. So it would send a message to politicians. Well, you know, people say they care about it, but they really don't care about it that much at all. Right. So we can Mm. we can ignore it. We can sort of pay lip service. So I don't think that we need to worry so much about converting hard right deniers. I think what we need to worry about more than that is uh, convincing people who believe that climate change is real, who are concerned about it, that there's anything we can do about it, that there are things we can do about it that will actually make life better in lots of tangible ways, make cities more livable, um, you know, make workplaces fairer. And that, you know, that's the idea behind the Green New Deal. So you know, the issue around uh, the, you know, how, do, how do we um, you know, bring the, the far right with us, how, how do we make it less of a sort of left-wing seeming issue where that usually leads us is to introducing policies like a revenue neutral carbon tax that you know you, you tax carbon but you give all the money back to uh, to to voters or uh, a cap and trade system which is a, a market based solution and the problem is that this isn't going to get the job done the IPCC has told us that we have now just 11 years to cut global emissions in half. And that is going to take policies that are anathema to a right-wing worldview. And I just don't think that we have the time to waste uh, to sort of cater to a worldview that frankly is at war with life on Earth. Well, I think, you know, accepting that, and I, I personally I do largely accept that. But then the question is, you know, how do you, given that the clock is ticking so loudly for us now, how do you move as quickly as possible to to address those challenges. And so, for example, you would find here in Ireland that the Green Party will say that they are willing to go into government with centre parties or indeed centre-right parties. The, the, the most successful Green Party probably in the world is in Germany. It seems, you know, very likely that it'll be going into government and that might well be with the Christian mm-hmm. Democrats uh, in, the, in, in the not-too-distant future. And the reason why they're making those decisions is to move on from the sort of the, you know, the, the zero impact carbon tax, which you're talking about, to to more radical solutions. And aren't they right about that? Well, I think that that's part of what's going to get us some action. But the other thing that's going to get us action is people outside on the streets, which we're seeing more and more of 
with the student climate strikes. Um, they are now inviting adults to join them. In last March, there were 1.6 million young people on the streets in a single day. Um, and that led to real changes in governments. We saw multiple governments declaring climate emergencies. We still don't have policies that are in line with the rhetoric. Uh, but I think it shows that that sort of grassroots pressure is another factor in what produces change, that this isn't just about what elite coalitions are created between which political parties. It is also about that bottom-up pressure of people declaring an emergency, not waiting for governments to declare an emergency, but people declaring that emergency from below, refusing to continue with business as usual. Um, and in the past, that has been a major force for what produces political change. Um, and, uh, and I guess that's that um, sort of pincer of outside and inside power is where I place uh, my political hopes. And then in terms of what then needs to be done at a state level or, or in fact, at a, at a global level, often, I mean, you, you draw comparisons. I mean, you mentioned the Green New Deal a couple of times, comparisons with major mass mobilizations in the face of crisis mm-hmm. that have taken place in the past. And the New Deal in the United States in the 1930s is one of them, which you cite. You also talk about the, the mobilization uh, the, of the United States uh, during the Second World War, when decisions were made by governments that would have been unimaginable probably in peacetime in terms of people not being allowed to use their private cars anymore, uh, people being expected to grow their own vegetables, uh, obviously military mobilisation in all kinds of ways as uh, as well. Uh, I mean, I look at those examples and I think in the book it's fair to say that you say the New Deal was a partly success but not a, not a full success. So is the Second World War model the one? And if if that were the case, that's a, you know, one could argue that in extremists it's it's almost a totalitarian solution. Right. I mean, I, in the in the book, I, I I make the argument that the that the New Deal, the original New Deal, um, is a better uh, analogy for us. Imperfect though it was, it didn't pull the U.S. out of depression entirely. That took the huge economic stimulus of the Second World War, but it was successful in many many ways. I mean, I live in the United States now, and much of the public infrastructure that I enjoy, whether it is the local library or the trails in a state park, um, you know, or even a forest, uh, two more than two billion trees were planted during the nine years of the New Deal uh, through the Civilian Conservation Corps. And that's that's an example that is really important to remember because we do need to plant uh, a whole lot of trees if we're going to sequester the carbon that we need to stabilize our climate below 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So, I mean, the, the New Deal... The reason why I think it is a better analogy than the Second World War mobilizations, it's precisely as you say, um, that was a top-down, more authoritarian response. And uh, I think that if we continue to delay, that kind of authoritarian response will be the only response possible, which is why it is so important for us to have a much more democratic one. And, And the New Deal is a good example because it had that interplay between a progressive government and organized, uh, mobilized uh, movements, pushing that government from below, pushing it to do better, forcing it to be responsible uh, and responsive, uh, and and sort of iterating the New Deal as it went. The New Deal wasn't, you know, one policy. It was hundreds of policies that changed, adapted under public pressure and without that sort of authoritarian uh, context. 
And do you think that kind of change is possible in the United States now? I ask because it looks like increasingly the United States is a sort of a rogue state in, in, in world affairs and its, its, its refusal to comply with the sort of the basic rules of the road, which most other states in the world comply with. Uh, it's the fact that there is a climate denier in the White House and there's no shortage of them in Congress as well. And the, the key positions in government are currently occupied by climate deniers. I mean, that, that isn't the case anywhere else in the democratic world that I know. Should, should we over here on this side of the Atlantic perhaps just give up on the United States for the moment and get on with whatever we can do? Well, you should definitely get on with whatever you can do. Um, we all need to. And um, and that also goes for the United States. Um, luckily, Donald Trump and, and this extraordinarily dangerous administration, um, while they control some very powerful levers of power, they don't control everything. And so... Um, one of the things that's been quite heartening is that we've seen more ambition at the subnational level, whether it's cities like New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles, introducing very bold climate policies inspired by this New Deal framework and states like New York State and California under pressure from grassroots groups, introducing a, a statewide Green New Deal. Um, and that's interesting historically as well, because FDR, who introduced the national original New Deal in the 1930s, had been governor of New York and had actually road tested some of the policies that were that, that went national with the New Deal. Um, so while it is true that Washington, that, that Washington has gone rogue, it isn't true that the U.S. is entirely under the thumb of Donald Trump. Um, and so what the next um, you know, couple of years leading up to the, 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 the new administration, what we hope will be a new administration in January 2021, um, is simultaneously that pressure on subnational governments um, and also, obviously, trying to get a new administration in Washington that is ready to introduce a Green New Deal on day one. Um, and, uh, and that's why we've seen different candidates running to lead the Democratic uh, Party, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, running on platforms that include a very bold uh, uh, Green New Deal. And I mean, in your last book, uh, no is not enough. I mean, you address some of these issues in the, in the wake of the of the election of of Donald Trump. And in a way, the climate change argument has become confused or tangled or mixed up, hasn't it, with these broader issues around uh, a populist revolt, uh, a racial backlash, um, a very different um, revolt against globalism from the one that that you've been involved in in a long time. What what is the dynamics of all that? Well, there's there's no doubt in my mind that the rise of the a a, a white nationalist um, right um, and 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 generally you know not just a uh, not necessarily white also kind of ethno nationalism that we are seeing in India under Modi um, you know Netanyahu in Israel we um, we are in the midst of a hardening on the political right that is extremely xenophobic. We see it in Brazil with Bolsonaro, with this direct, his discourse around the foreign NGOs, foreign interference in the Amazon. Um, it's the fear of the outside other. In the United States, it expresses itself under Donald Trump as this virulent anti-immigrant backlash in Europe, uh, under you know, Salvini and others, you have a very, very similar rhetoric and brutality. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is happening as the climate crisis really um, becomes harder and harder to deny. 
And I think even people who claim that they deny climate change know that climate change is happening and that we are in a period where uh, of mass migration and it isn't going to slow. Um, and so there's really a couple of options in the face of that. One is you we admit that our uh, that our destinies are intertwined, um, that rights are tied to the person, not to nationality, that we reimagine our entire attitude towards borders, and we share what is left of our, of our habitable planet uh, um, with justice at the center. And, and you know, that's the argument that I'm making in the book. The, what, what the Trumps and the Salvinis uh, are doing is very different. They are saying, let's hoard what's left. Let's fortress our continents, our, our countries. Um, and I think more and more we are seeing climate, the climate denier side of this project be usurped by a eco-fascist side of this movement. The, the El Paso shooter in the United States um, was not a climate change denier. He talked about his great concern about environmental issues, and that was part of what was fueling his anti-immigrant hatred. Um, the same is true of the Christchurch shooter uh, on March 15th in New Zealand. Um, he expressly identified as an eco-fascist. Um, so I think there is a very ugly cocktail going on now. Um, and this, you know, comes back to, to me, your question of, you know, if this, be, you know, if this becomes a so-called partisan issue, will we ever get anything done? You know, to me, I think we need to actually identify that these are very, very dangerous. This is a very dangerous worldview, and it shouldn't be catered to. It strikes me listening to you there, and I was thinking about there was there was one passage that struck me in the in in your new book, which I think relates back to work that you were doing maybe twenty years ago around the time of No Logo, and you you talk about you were in the Philippines and you were covering workers who were working on on incredibly low wages in these sweatshop factories producing products which were then being sold uh, at much higher prices in the in the Western world, and you were taken aback or perhaps rather shocked at the fact that the, uh, they were using these pitiful wages to buy you know, heavily branded goods, often counterfeit probably, but still with very, very strong brands on them. And you were sort of, you know, you were sort of horrified at that to your Western perspective. People turned around and said, you have to understand that that this is meaningful to these people and they operate in a completely different universe from the one you do. And you've written very well over the years about the way in which, you know, value uh, in, in capitalism has been kind of, has been removed from the manufacture of things and it's become attached instead to the, to, to the to brands and images. And it seems to me that there's a similar weightless quality, uh, and I, I don't say this is a good thing at all, but there's a similar weightless quality to the kind of ways in which this issue of climate change is discussed, addressed in the media. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge gestural part to it. Uh, corporations mm-hmm. are spending increasing amounts of money in claiming that they're you know, carbon neutral or close to carbon neutral. Um, people are taken to task because they take aeroplanes or don't take aeroplanes, or there's arguments, I mean, um, you know, as we speak, you know, Greta Thunberg's, you know, journey across the Atlantic is the subject of most much debate in this. It, how, it, it's, it seems to me very often that this gestural element just gets in the way of talking about this stuff in a meaningful way. The point that I was making in that essay in the book um, is that for the workers that I was meeting in the Philippines, um, they didn't see their consumption, you know, what what 
logo was or wasn't on their clothing or where they happened to have lunch that day. You know, maybe maybe if they had a little extra money, they went to McDonald's. Um, they didn't see that as their sphere of influence because they had so little money, it, it, it really didn't occur to them that consumption was a sphere of politics. Um, the, politics was what you did when you organized with each other to become more powerful. And the people I was, was, talk, I was talking to were trying to form a union in an export processing zone so that they would have political power. And that just contrasted so sharply with what it meant to talk politics back home, you know, at the time I was living in Canada. And, you know, when I published No Logo, whenever I would talk to people about these big structural issues, these trade deals that were making it possible for corporations to outsource labor uh, through this network of subcontractors and so on, um, you know, the, the, the first question was almost invariably, um, what kind of running shoes can I buy? You know, what kind of trainers can I buy? What is a good brand? Where do you shop? Um, and, and people really sort of wanted me to be their sort of personal shopping advisor. Um, and the same thing happens with climate change often. You know, the, the, the very first question is, you know, um, you know about what, what, what we should eat, what we should buy. And I, I am not saying that those questions aren't important and that we shouldn't look for consistency in our lives I think part you know I think partly it's important to uh, to do these things because it shows us that it actually isn't the end of the world when we lower our personal carbon footprint when we eat lower on the food chain um, because there is so much hysteria that sort of frames uh, climate action as something that is going to you know, ruin your life make you miserable is all going to be about um, sort of depleting your 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 happiness, your quality of life. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the things that we need to do to lower emissions are I, make us happier, make our bodies healthier. That said, um, you know, I do think that we are are continuing to 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 respond primarily as consumers, as opposed to uh, as people who can organize to become more powerful together. And that's really the legacy of Thatcherism and Reaganism, uh, of the whole idea that there is no such thing as a society. And we really need to unlearn that. Um, you know, I think what Greta Thunberg is doing with the student strike, with her decision to, to sail across the Atlantic, she, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for her. Um, and I think she's already changed the world massively for the better. Um, and I think what she's doing is she is modeling what it means to treat this as an emergency in her own life, not because she's under any illusion that this is going to lower emissions by the amount that we need to lower emissions in time, but because she's trying to call on people who have a lot more powerful power than a 16-year-old girl to actually treat this like an emergency. She's trying to model this for politicians, right? The only things you know teenagers can do is not do the one thing that teenagers are supposed to do, which is go to school. That's their way of acting like they're in an emergency and refusing business as usual. If you're an elected politician, you have all kinds of ways to treat this like this is an emergency. So, um, you know, I think that 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 what she's doing is incredibly important. But she would be the last person to say that this is something that we can solve just with our consumer choices. I suppose one of the reasons I um, I, I was asking you that, and that's a great answer, by the way, but um, is that 
our world has changed enormously over the last 20 years, largely because of a revolution mm-hmm. in communications technologies. And they play a large part in some of the political changes which we've been talking about for the last for the last half an hour or so. They also change the way we think about our own lives, I think, in some ways, arguably, mm-hmm. uh, and the way in which we construct our identities and certainly change the way in which we present those identities to the world. And the way that we talk about climate change and about personal responsibility versus collective action versus the political structures um, is is deeply inflected by those it seems it seems to me so this is the this is this is the prime political issue of our age and it's inflected by mm-hmm. the different ways in which we in which we we act both as a, as individuals and as a collective these days I'm not sure I get the question I think it's a very interesting point um, and I think, you know, I think partly what we are dealing with when we, when we think about climate change is, is just the, the scale of it doesn't really fit in the way we tend to think about politics. Um, and it just keeps, it's, it's almost too big for the frame. Um, mm. and, and that, I mean, I often find myself in a, in a situation living in the U.S. where I'm talking to somebody about, Trump and all the terrible things that he's doing, and he's doing a lot of terrible things. And you'll you know hear the litany. And very often, the fact that our world is on fire doesn't make the list. It, and it's not that the person who's talking doesn't know, doesn't care, isn't profoundly freaked out. There's just a way that it's so big, it 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 falls off the list because it isn't a list. It's not an item on the list. It is the frame in which. Our whole lives exist, um, and we don't. Our, our politics isn't built for an issue on that scale. And it may well be, perhaps, that that we aren't built for an issue on that scale. I mean, some people argue that you know that there are cognitive flaws in our evolutionary development that don't necessarily render us very good at dealing with an enormous, terrifying, impending. Uh, but not tomorrow disaster that that we prefer to, that in some ways, in that case, you could argue that Trump is a welcome distraction from the real problem we face. Well, there's no doubt that he's a distraction machine. Um, it's, one, it, it's, it's his one true gift um, is, is changing the subject multiple times a day, keeping people in a state of mental, you know, scrambledness, much like scrolling through one's Twitter feed. Um, and, 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 you know, this is one of the. I you know that what I write about in the in the book about Greta is one of her great gifts is her focus, um, and it's something to appreciate about neurodiversity. There's, it's interesting that so many young people who are on the autism spectrum are becoming climate change leaders, and one of the one of the gifts many people who are on the autism spectrum have is is that ability to focus, to not be distracted, um, and not take their social cues from people around them. Uh, not not being so focused on what other people are doing, but sort of living in their in their own worlds and trusting, you know, with their own beliefs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt that that Trump has that gift, um, and yeah, luckily he's not the only buddy, only only one with power in this equation. Finally, if you wouldn't mind, that you know, the the science tells us that this is going to get much worse, and that's going to happen very quickly. And some people looking at that reality and then looking around at the political landscape and how well or not it is geared uh, to, to, to cope with that and to instigate the, the huge changes which are required, 
might just end up being pessimistic. Uh, might say uh, that their experience of humans and their ability to order their affairs is that we're just not capable of dealing with this, that it's not going to happen. Are you, well, how are you? Are you more optimistic, I take it, than that? You have some you have some belief in our ability to, to confront this. Well, the reason why I focus on the Green New Deal and also the take some solace from the history of the original New Deal and the Marshall Plan is that there, there are historical precedents for times when humans have done big things very quickly uh, in the face of crisis. And um, one of the, I think, great strengths of this framework, of a Green New Deal framework, um, is that we are not just asking people to take action for some abstract idea of the environment or saving the planet. This is a massive jobs program. This is, you know, if we design it right, we could be creating many millions of unionized jobs, which people desperately need. Um, we could be getting at the roots of a mental health crisis and social isolation. We can, you know, we are in this period of such profound uh, a social fragmentation. And one of the things that a Green New Deal style framework, whatever you decide to call it, gives us is a sense of common mission, a sense of common purpose, which I think people desperately need right now. Um, so, you know, coming back to your question about the, you know, whether there's some evolutionary flaw, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but I think the great the great strengths of framing our actions in the face of the climate crisis as an opportunity to build a fair economy is that we are addressing people's immediate economic needs at the same time as we are trying to address this planetary scale crisis, which admittedly is very difficult to wrap our minds around, especially when we are juggling multiple daily crises and distractions. Um, so, you know, the question of whether or not I'm hopeful, you know, I have a seven-year-old, um, you know, just today I was, uh, you know, taking him to summer camp um, and he was asking me about the fires in, the, in the, the Amazon that he'd heard about on the radio and he was completely horrified by that. Um, you know, I don't feel that it's fair to just give up um, because our odds aren't good. And I, and I admit that they're not. I mean, I think that if we were, if I, if I were approaching this as a sort of a wager, I would bet against us, but this isn't a wager. This is our one and only home. This is our future and our children's future. Um, so if there's any chance that we could get ourselves to safety, then the only thing that matters is that we do everything possible to improve our odds, to enlarge our chances. So I don't spend, frankly, any time thinking about whether or not our chances are good and whether or not we should be hopeful. Um, I think about how we improve the conditions for hope. And that takes action. We have to earn that. We have to earn that hope with our actions. Naomi Klein, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. And Naomi Klein's book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, is published by Alan Lane. Naomi's going to be in the National Stadium in Dublin on Friday, October the 18th for a public conversation with writer Lorna Gold under the auspices of the International Literature Festival Dublin. For more information, go to ilfdublin.ie. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. And remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinhamtirishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.